Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son and brother Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. So how are you doing, Caroline? I can't believe it's February. I know. Well, looking forward to Valentine's Day. You know, I just feel like every month needs a holiday. So bring on oh, the love. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say every day needs a holiday. Well, I mean, that too, that would but get every boring. month. That would yeah, get I mean, get on it, federal government. Like holiday every two weeks. What's up? <laughs> yeah. And those people running the government are saying you already have a holiday for Saturday and Sunday. And we're thinking of some way to get that away from you also. So oh, anyway. they already have it. They gave us kids activities. But I <laughs> I mean, like, I want like the Congress level kind of kick your feels, you know, beat up on the desk. Like, maybe my home is going to get a government shutdown today. We got to work so hard. Oop going out of session we're on break or whatever they do that feel like they break every every time i know well you know i still want the health care that the people working in congress get you mm-hmm. know i mean i think every american should get whatever their representatives are getting and no more Ooh. no less i like that well that's just my thought anyway <laughs> so um well we're talking about family murder again and this this one is um very interesting to me, and I know you uh, also found it interesting and sent me a a text about it. And I think that um, the time is right to talk about Stephen Grant, the killer in this family. And um, but you know, the name of our episode today is Light Eternal. And at the very end, as we talk about the aftermath of what happened to our victim. Um, and our heroine, uh, same person, then, you know, you'll, uh, it'll become clearer. And I do think that sometimes in the wake of a family murder, many times I see families trying to turn this horror into something good for other people. I see that a lot. And, um, I particularly like how this family is handling it, um, So today's episode is, uh, again, you know, there's a murderer. His name is Stephen, and we just will um, leave it there. Today's episode is about a Michigan girl born in June 1972 named Tara DeTromp in a very small town called Perkins, Michigan. She had a younger sister named Tricia. Her parents were hardworking, and they made a decent living for their two girls. One thing about the town of Perkins, though, is it's super, super small. It's very close-knit, much like many of the other communities in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. And you, you, our listeners may remember the episode we did about the, uh, the killing of the uh, wife of someone in a small town in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. Same thing here. Very, very tight-knit town. When uh, 
when Tara was growing up, most of her contemporaries, and by all, what I mean by most is almost all kids in that area wanted to, they want their goal in life is to get married, to get a good job, to settle down in or near the family home. And uh, Tara, on the other hand, made it super clear to everybody at a very early age that she wanted something different. She wanted the finer things in life. And we, you and I were just talking about the finer things in life. We're like, you know, we were. I literally said it. I'm wondering if this is where I got it from. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, there's a there's a line to be drawn maybe between the, the finer things in life, meaning the more refined whatever, um, and the what is going on in our country right now where uh, there's a lot of pushback on the gentrification of towns where everything has to be perfect and right. attract tourists and by its theme and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, Tara was, uh, she was just wanting to get out of Perkins as fast as she could. She wasn't someone who said, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to run for city council and I'm going to change this, this and that about the town of Perkins. No, right. she just wanted out. She wanted to get out of, out of Perkins and see life. the world. Big yes. life, big city kind of thing. Yeah. She was very well known in town and, and I'm sure there were a lot of things about her that were very endearing to others. But she was also known as headstrong. Uh, I was that way when I was growing up. Opinionated. Okay, that too. F-bomb dropping bombastic person. Um, no, we were not allowed to say the F word when I was growing up. In fact, I don't even recall hearing it, you know, until I was a teenager. I mean, I feel like you just described a well-rounded young lady. But maybe <laughs> things are different in my world. <laughs> Yeah, you and I, you know, both had some of these characteristics that we were, you know, we knew what we thought and nobody was going to sit on our heads and make us think otherwise. That's right. I don't know if it was like the American in me or the, yeah, the mom, you know, I had a really strong mom, a real good dad, like, but I, nobody was going to tell me, like prescribe to me how to live. Right. That was up to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know part of the world is able to just look at things and 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 have magical thinking about how the world works and a lot of other things and they just accept that and and then the some of the world is always uh, applying critical thinking and um, and wanting to go about the world as a the entire globe not my world meaning my address right uh, which I will not give here on our podcast. But anyway, I do feel like I'm in my own world at my house, but I also want to see the other part of the world. So anyway, all of these things about Tara caused some problems in school as well as at home. She and her sister were close, and they also frequently were at war over things that Tara would say and do. Tara was very smart. And with only two other students in the class of 40, uh, when she graduated, she made higher grades than everybody but two people. So, uh, oh. yeah, she was in the top 
10% or top 5% of her class, in other words. So she was smart. It, it, this was class. not coming. Just 40 people? So she's like. There were 40 people in her class. Now, remember, we're in a tiny little town. Yeah, but she's ranked third. I mean, that that's really impressive to yes. me, honestly. Yes. And, you know, you could even wonder, did those other two people cheat? Or, I mean, I, I'm always on the side of our victim and I'm already on Tara's side. You go, girl. And don't pay any attention to those other two people who cheated. You are the smart one. That, I mean, just no offense to people who were smarter than Tara. I mean, no offense. I'm just kidding about. But anyway, the way that the de Trump family was organized, uh, which is really what I love to dig into, parents incentivized and encouraged positive pro-social behaviors from their two children. Uh, for example, when Tara was talking too much at school, her parents set up a system of Tara receiving one stick of gum each time the teacher did not call them at the you know after school that day and say that Tara was talking too much. So she learned through this incentive to remodel her style of expression in order to get that stick of gum. Uh Okay, That's now I'm, cool. I'm her sister, uh, Trisha, and I'm thinking, where's my gum? Uh, Do you yeah, have yeah. to be bad and then good or what? I mean, you know. <laughs> that is the trouble with the sibling thing. It's like, That's okay, trouble. wait a minute. That's trouble. That's I didn't do trouble. any of that. I didn't make you jump through any hoops and I get nothing. <laughs> you know, I went through that with my brother. Yeah. Bless his heart. You know, he's passed away now, but uh, I always wanted to be like him because he never got into any trouble. And when yeah. I would tell my parents that they were playing favorites, they would say, well, you know, you're the one who is not doing what you're supposed to do or, you know, doing things, Ouch. not doing things that you're supposed to do. And he doesn't have that problem. And I'm thinking, well, you know, he's not even trying to be good. He's just naturally good. Why right. should someone be rewarded? Well, anyway, Typical sibling rivalry. The way the de Trump family was organized, in other words, was, I think, a very good pro-social way. Um, they weren't, you know, suggesting that you go to school and beat up your teacher because she said you were talking too much. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, they were not helicopter parents. Both Tara and Tricia made their own choices, and they didn't feel limited by the mores of the day. So they didn't get that pushed on them by their parents or expectations of controlling parents like many of their contemporaries uh, may have been. So this kind of goes back to one of the first things I said is everybody wanted to get married. They wanted to get a good job and they wanted to live as close to their family of origin as they possibly could. And did that come from those children or did it come from their parents? I think it was a it's a it's a toss up. It's kind of a mixture maybe of both. Well, and I remember, so I went to school through the 80s, and I, there's a lot of social pressure. And by social, I mean just your community. You go to a school within a community. That community feeds the mores of that school because the community's children are going there. These kids who behave like their parents or who oppose their parents' behavior. Either way, you're getting a mix. And what you're getting is a lot of messages about, like for me when I was younger, two-parent home, correct way divorced home, unfortunate outcome, right? Like that was tr the true narrative that was sort of displayed for children. I agree. And over time, I realized that 
it does no good for quarreling parents to stay married. Correct. And yeah. uh, and so divorce to me is a good choice in many circumstances, and it does not harm the children yeah. if a parenting plan works well, the, out. Yeah, born out of it is the today we now are more aware of the blended families, and the families yes. are half choice. Pretty, you know the the biology's there if you, you know, to help you make the choice, I guess, but it's not always true now. That well, there's also the argument that our human beings truly meant to be monogamous right. and for long periods of time, you and know, this spot. idea of matrimony was, you know, uh, developed when people were keeling over in their late twenties. Well, so we I mean, farm labor, we needed yeah. people to be having some more labor, but I, yeah. <laughs> but I think she's in the same time period where, the 90s, yes, like that's there, but it is changing. We all get to choose now something different for ourselves. Doesn't yes. mean that's easy. Doesn't mean people no. still aren't going to go with this old judgment. It just means a lot more opportunity was coming out here for what you could build as far as a life for yourself. Yeah, the only thing about Tara's upbringing that I could point to for being a uh, a big mystery for me is her potty mouth. She had. Uh, you know, she now, and that even that is sexist, possibly. Well, um, they, they've done studies. People who have a tendency to swear are more genius than you. So, you know, I think that people just get jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't, I don't want to fill the air with uh, obscenities, <laughs> but I feel like it right now because that would be my badge of see how smart I am. Anyway, right. I'm I'm just not clear on how enabling these parents may have been mm. toward Tara or just maybe a wee bit passive about her cussing. Yeah. Um my guess is that they were very intelligent people and they picked their battles. That's probably pretty accurate. Even if it wasn't popular in their neighborhood. Yeah, that's a good point. But I th found it very interesting in doing research that I could find very little about the upbringing, except this kept coming up. The potty she, mouth? Seriously? The it potty, just the, the, the nerve of wanting to leave this town. And, wow. and I'm going to blow this pop stand as soon as I can kind of a thing. I, that's so funny to me because I see that as a quintessential teenage dream. I yeah. really do escaping your town. I mean, you could live um, in LA. I think kids would have that kind of a dream. I'm getting out of the Well, I don't know. Tara. Perkins, nobody thinks that except Tara. That's the, that's the narrative anyway. That's the narrative. a great town. I, it's, I'm sure it is a great town. And I want to say, I don't find anything objectionable at all to being born, raised, and living your life in the same neighborhood, on the same street, in the same house, you know, whatever works. I like that, yeah. Um, I know there's times when I'm thinking, geez, if I had stayed in Georgia, I'd probably have a lot more friends now because I would have met them in high school and we could have yeah. stayed friends and so forth and so on. And then I'm thinking, yeah. Bridget, um, you did what you did because that's what you wanted to do. And so you don't know what that would have been like. Yeah, and, but that's yeah, true. there's no perfect answer to how to live, yeah, I guess is the that's point. true. So Tara dated successful boys only with a wider world view. So she really didn't date that much. <laughs> <laughs> and, so she, she, to the boys she, of Perkins. <laughs> 
She went to Michigan State University where she studied business and marketing. She graduated with honors there in 1994. And she became a Kelly Girl employee. And Kelly Girl, for our listeners who aren't familiar with that, that's a temporary agency that back in the day, even including the early 90s, was called Kelly Girl, meaning temporary work for girls because only girls worked in the office. Now, that's not true anymore. (laughs) The minute the salary started going up, then boys wanted that job too. So anyway, she was a Kelly Girl working as an accountant where she rose through the ranks very quickly, even though she was just a temp. She was with the company that built big projects, such as Hoover Dam. I mean, Mm. that's like the biggest dam in the world. Well, yeah. So it was a very large development firm out of of, uh, Detroit. Ultimately, that firm was purchased by the Washington Group, which is an even larger international business consulting group. Very, very worldwide, huge group. Washington Group instantly recognized when they took over the company that she was working for as a temp, they instantly recognized that she has a fantastic mind and high energy. And she's the kind of employee that we want. And they hired her full-time which ultimately meant a lot of travel for Tara and a top-notch salary. Now, when I say top-notch, brace yourself. In the mid-90s, a six-figure income was rarefied, even more so for a woman. Moving from a university to a Kelly girl to a six-figure income but she did. She Tara earned her place through her intellect and her hard work in that rarefied world. As that Tara was, was put, I that you was, know what the her salary was about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in nineteen ninety, um, like the mid nineties. Yeah, that's, that's a quarter huge. million or more. You know, it's more like three hundred thousand today. Yeah, but I think she was a little lower than that when they. But she was in the six figures when they that's hired impressive. her. Uh, or she kept moving up until very quickly she got that kind of money. As Tara was putting together her hugely fantastic life, if you ask me, she met her killer, also known as her husband. So this is where she met Stephen Grant. And, you know, I'm just going to put it out there that, Caroline, you and I talk a lot about how every family murder is actually a family annihilation. Yeah. Just the ripple effect on that family and other families. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody. Who knows this? So, you know, I don't mind introducing Stephen to our listeners as the killer today. Um, She didn't see any potential with him at first. And then she started to notice a few things that made her change her mind enough to at least agree to date him. Part of the allure was Tara's perception of him that uh, that he was from Detroit, which is the big city. So, in other words, she wanted to leave her little town and getting to Detroit, which was not that far away, seemed like, you know, her ticket. Mm. Although she was making her own way. But, you know, she wanted she wanted a partner in life. And I think that's natural. Yeah. 
And uh, part of the allure uh, was Tara's perception of him that turned out later to be lie upon lie upon lie. Stephen Grant was willing to tell these lies in order to be bigger and better than he actually was. She had no way of knowing that. There was no grapevine coming around to tell her that because, you know, Tara was kind of a lone wolf. She was out there doing things that nobody in her contemporary group would could even relate to. She was. Well, I have to wonder about like her friend circles and stuff. It's probably it's probably a lot of family and probably just a lot of coworkers. I mean, when you're early on in your career. I mean, I don't even know when you are building a career like she's building, but you know, the small, reasonable one that I (laughs) feel like I've built for myself, it takes so much of your time and energy that friends, quote unquote, right? Yeah. Especially if they're not relating to what the world is you're building, that can be really time consuming and energy consuming to maintain. So sometimes they do fall away. Like it's hard to keep your absolutely. They're getting pregnant. Yeah, yeah. And having right. their family. This is their dream. And I right. was the same way. Yeah. I was the same way when I was, I was not like Tara. Yeah. At, I didn't dream the detailed dreams that she was having about what she wanted for her life. Yeah. I just wanted to have a family. That's what I wanted. Yeah. And it never occurred to me to think, well, I'm going to have one right here in Georgia and I'm never going to leave. I didn't have thoughts like that. Right. I had thoughts of I'm open to whatever and however it happens, but I want a family of yeah. my own. I think that was the good trick for you and dad was that you knew the thing. You didn't care about the location. Right. So that was, I think, helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were both like that. From Tara's perspective, you know, Stephen lived in Detroit, for starters, as I've already said, which what is what she was looking for, although, you know, how about London? Anyway, uh, she wanted to leave her little town for the big city. He showed her only the bright side and the rich side of Detroit. He drove an expensive car, and he looked and talked like he was going places so she could connect with him. There's, there's some... Um, simpatico there between the two of them. In her mind, his parents had money because the father owned and operated a tool and dye business that had a lot of clients and a great reputation. And more and more clients wanted this tool and dye outfit. And remember, you know, this was Detroit and there was still a fortune to be made in the heyday of manufacturing. So, you know, uh, cars, of course, but also the offshoot of that would be a lot of manufacturing companies. Yeah. And tool and die is sounds kind of weird, but tool and die is the factory that makes the parts of the other factories That's gonna be able to car, produce yeah. what they are producing. Yeah. So you know it was a good business and and it was good. And Stephen came from a normal, whatever that means, stable home. <laughs> But at some point, his parents divorced, Mm -hmm. and he went with the father, and he learned the ropes of the manufacturing company, and another son, his brother, stayed in the family home with the mother. And it's not clear to me when Stephen started lying as a way of life. Was it it then that 
in order to deal with this divorce, he decided, you know, I'm just going to make up a life. This life is not going so well. And when I say lie, I mean bragging and exaggerating. Just making up reality, embellishing. Uh, it would be a nice way of saying what I'm going to call it, which is fake, phony, incredible lying. That's what I think of about people who brag and exaggerate and embellish everything. Unless it's for art, then I'm okay with that. But <laughs> the goal there is fantasy. If you're a novelist, anyway, if you're a poet, <laughs> You know, I'm going to give you a pass, but if but in you're the real somebody life, that somebody says, what do you do for a living? And you work in a hospital changing big pants, but you say I'm a doctor. That is just, you're a counterfeit. Exactly. Whereas if you say I work in a hospital, you're still somewhat of an artist because they have to say, what do you do before it all falls apart? <laughs> How about, you know what? Right now I'm filling time trying to figure out what I want to be. Well, that's I'm not sure. That's a soul who knows itself, Mom. Most people aren't like that, particularly okay. killers. But, yeah. <laughs> but well, you're right. I will say that, is... that all the, the whole time that I was wanting a family in Columbus, Georgia, I also went to college. Yeah. So I you knew that there was some reason that, I mean, I needed to get some credentials. You don't need any credentials to have a family. No, but... But you were very smart about the, and and I know that you talk about this a lot, about your parents taking you to the library and the community theater and how yes, you felt like yes. those were the two of the most best pillars you can build a life on ever. Right. I agree. I agree. I agree. There was a lot weird about my upbringing, but that my parents were, uh, they did value some of the things that I still value today, music, art, the library, studying an open mind. And yeah. those kinds of things. But not just that. It's the community and what it has to offer you and what yes. in turn you then can offer it as a participant in those activities, right? Like that's the part that I really liked is that every community has a piece of it you can tap into with no money, right? You tap into it for a network of people who will guide you down this place. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, you know, I bet if anybody is listening to this podcast that is... uh in this very town that we were talking about, Perkins, uh, there's going to be some uh, quiet on the down low communities that would suit almost everybody. But if you're, if you're, uh, the, the pull that you feel in your heart and, and what the heart wants is to travel and see the world and do well and have money and all that then Perkins might not be for you. So right. anyway, he, he, uh, he, Stephen, you know, he knew how to date this girl. He, uh, he knew how to talk to her in a way that would, you know, he, he was just a quick read on her that she wanted a larger world. She sought the best of whatever it was that she was acquiring in life. And she tended to treat people beneath her in her mind with a chill and perhaps a little dismissiveness and he caught he caught on to that mm. um she might have been very dismissive of other people i don't know but there was some um biographical information about her that kind of painted the picture that she was a woman on a mission in a laser focus yeah and I don't think she probably spent the time to think, I don't want anything to do with you because you're not in my class. 
I don't think that was her mind. I think her mind was, how am I going to get there and who can help me? And what are the right steps for me to get to where I'm going? Yeah. Yeah. So not quite elitist, but a little more choice. I mean, you know, you're not wasting your time. (laughs) Maybe aloof. Yeah. um, And single-minded. And a lot of people uh, might mistake that for snobbery. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I don't know. But Stephen was astute about this. He's picking up on it. And he knew immediately who he had to be. I'm going to say what he had to be in order to ever join his life with hers. And that is definitely what he wanted. He could see that she was his ticket to probably uh, more and better than he could ever earn on his own. Another word for that, in my opinion, is lazy. Mm Mm-hmm. He wanted what she wanted, but he was lazy and she was not lazy. Yeah. There's some strategy there like, yeah, it's not a bad idea to marry someone who fills a gap maybe in your skill set or whatever or your character flaws because we all have them. But this starts to border on the opportunistic, um, exploitative side when you are only choosing them to be your housemate or your banker or your whatever, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I mean, Stephen took her, you know, when he was trying to lure her to all the best places. Um, He knew that that is what she would appreciate. He even proposed marriage to her at the Detroit Institute of Art because he knew that Tara loved art and the building itself is so famous. Uh in the world for fine art. Even the building itself is an art, uh, won a lot of prizes for aesthetics and architecture. Stephen did a lot of love bombing, I think we would call it today. And he was attracted to superficial aspects of the human experience, and like uh, comfort and predictability and status and um, stature in the hierarchy of who's valuable in this society and who is not kind of thing. And I'm putting a label on it called superficial aspects of the human experience. The only reason that he drilled down into art, in my opinion, is because that was a lure that he could put in front of the fish that he wanted to catch. Yeah. Named Tara. She liked art, so... Yes. Yeah, me too. I find nothing artistic about him. Yeah, yeah. And he found that Tara appreciated those things. And so, you know, being the con artist that he was, in my opinion, um, he's going to put him out there. I think think that Tara also could be someone who appeared to appreciate the superficial things in life. But I think that's because Tara confused success and getting out of her small town with superficiality. Mm. And those things are not the same. Right. And I don't think that they are the same when it comes to her. I do not believe that she was a superficial person. No. If she was a superficial person, she would not be able to perform so well in her job before that even school. Yeah. Yep, I mean, I agree. she's somebody who's going to put in the work. She's got she's going to strive. Yeah. Yes. 
She did want the finer things in life, but being a visionary, having a heightened intellect, and having a goal for reaching for the stars, so to speak, is not the same as putting on a show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was open and honest and in a hurry to reach her goals, and she did. Stephen was window dressing for her in order to own her life, and he caught her. That's what I think has happened here. Yeah. I don't think Tara could see or detect the likes of Stephen Grant's factitious character and behavior. Yeah. She knew her mind, and she probably think, thought that everybody had the same mind. Just well, goal for yourself, and this, not how can I use other people. Right. And it's not actually odd, right, for a suitor to uh, ascribe or like soak up some feign, some interest into another thing because they know that they're, you know, the person who they have feelings for or that they would like to get to know better likes those things. That's not the weird part here because that's pretty normal. Like, oh, I don't really like Italian, but you love Italian. So yeah, let's go to Italian dinner. You can't, there's some things you put aside in order to meet the objective, which is to get to know this person. Do I like this person? Stephen was a little different in that he was like, meal ticket, I got to get her. What, you know, what can I fake? And, and I think there was a story earlier that uh, we had kind of looked at where he he went to go to homecoming and lied about something and the girlfriend, you know, I mean, it's like this guy's on another level of creating mm-hmm. that feigned interest in order to meet this person to see if they would connect. He is literally like meal ticket. Let me create a persona for myself. Okay, got him. You know, that kind of a thing. It's definitely different. It's more of that con. I, if Stephen has a gift, and all people do, in my opinion, that my observation after living for a while is that everybody's got something about them that is uh, their superpower. Yeah. And I think that if he has a superpower, um, it's going to be being able to read other people. Yeah, what they want, what they like, what they're into, what their bottom line is. <laughs> and that is a superpower because... When you're, for example, when you're trying to be influential of other people, so you're a leader or you're, uh, uh, or you're in marketing, yeah. uh, as she was in her, in her, uh, education anyway. And I imagine to earn the kind of money she did, she had to do quite a bit of working with other people. Right. If you have the gift of being able to read other people and, um, and through just respect and uh, sort of mirroring some of their preferences uh, in order to uh, relate to them in a way that will make the other person more willing to trust you. But underneath that with Tara, I think was actual trust Mm -hmm. or she would not have been as successful as she was for as long as she was or as, by as long as she was, I mean, she was at that level in in high school. Obviously, yes. if you're able to read your teacher to know what is it that I need to focus on in order to make an A plus in this class, right? There's nothing superficial about that. That's a respect for the teacher and a skill and for the skill. What? Yes, do I and for knowledge. My goal, yeah, yes. So I don't think Tara is. My point is that. Tara could never have seen this coming. Yeah. 
because she didn't, her mind didn't work like that. She probably didn't know yet that there were pretenders. Maybe she did, but I don't know. Stephen was very good at it. And, uh, you know, they were dating and, and they were, they were doing very well. And, uh, after Stephen showed up uninvited to Tara's grandfather's funeral, and, and that funeral was several hundred miles away, uh, he just showed up at the funeral telling her, I just felt like I needed to be here to support you. She was hooked. She was hooked. Wow. Uh, she took it as a bold move to show his support for her. She was there with her then boyfriend when he did that. But Stephen's concern for her meant a lot. And when he proposed marriage, you know, there at the Art Institute in Detroit, they were married in a 1996 uh, wedding. And in the wedding announcement, Stephen was described as a graduate of Michigan State University, which was a lie. He dropped out when he was just short 20 credits. Which and 20, 20 more credits, he would have graduated. I feel like 20 credits is a little bit more than short. You know, you're short two to five credits. You're When you're 20 credits, you dropped out before completing. <laughs> like, that's a full quarter and a half, you know? It's a lie. He would probably say it was an embellishment. To me, there's no difference. Yeah, right. Uh, when you're trying to put facts about who you are into the program for we introduce you to this married couple and here's what each brings to this relationship as they oh, plan their future together. Just an embellishment, but still, God, like, why wouldn't you just? So, I mean, you know, we've already done a lot of unpacking about Stephen's behavior. Um, but, you know, I, I can't stop doing it because mostly because I resonate with type A personalities, you know, like Tara. I can, I, this could, this could have happened to me, maybe. Right. Uh, I'm, I was in a hurry, though, to leave. I was not in the hurry that she was to leave a small town, but I was in a hurry to get, I wanted a family of my own. Yeah. So anyway, I, I just am mad at him for being the way that he is. And when I read about Stephen, all I see is entitlement, um, image strategy, manipulation, combined with a bit of rash thinking. Now, uh, more than a bit, more than a bit of rash thinking. The lie that he is a graduate when he came so close but did not finish the task suggests to me that he suffers from childish impulsiveness and he lies to cover up his true self. And, you know, when you're putting out a public document that is from the heart and you're lying about it, you know, that, to me, is just a childish impulsiveness that he is indulging in himself and not making it into maturity where he would begin to use critical thinking to decide how he's going to behave. Well, and how old was he when his parents, when his family was kind of restructured? I mean, honestly, because I, I don't... Middle school, I think. Middle school. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah. I do wonder, like you, when this mode of of coping really coping yes. strategy came into his world for him because yeah. you know by this time in his age it seems to have really spiraled into something dangerous yeah i mean you know he appears to me to be a natural born liar 
but maybe it was something acquired out of the brain that was trying to protect him from reality. Well, yeah, because his family was not just a divorce where he and his brother are now moving about. It, it seemed to restructure his family. He's with his dad, his brother's with his mom. And I don't know any more than that. But there has to have been some molding on his part of himself to try and make that work for himself, right? Anyone would do that. And I, you know, I just want to point out not to defend Steve, but to say that I realize that it's not just black and white, that um, our brains come up with some cockamamie ideas about how to make us happy. Oh, yeah. uh, for example, when I say those words, uh, uh, the image of a Snickers bar comes into my mind, you know, that my brain is telling me to do things that are quite literally deadly uh, when taken to the extreme. And uh, I personally am one of those people who cannot be in the presence of a, of a Snickers bar without wanting to own the factory. So <laughs> every everybody has got some kind of false reasoning in their head to try to cope with whatever it is that's going on. And that can last a lifetime. I get that. Yes. And I get that because I've got that. <laughs> anyway, this though, this coping strategy that he has, this childish impulsiveness and lying is going to come up in a gruesome way later in our story. But let's go back to our happy story of the newlywed Stephen and Tara Grant. Tara worked for the Washington Group where she was noticed as talented and promoted over and over and over again, as I've already said. Stephen worked for his father's business in running a successful tool and die shop. But he didn't work at that very much, and he made very little money. They found a nice place to live, and Tara was very proud of herself. She had escaped her small town, and and um, she was on her way. Uh, She's to already what there. Is the, sti- <laughs> the stars of the limit? Yeah. By 1997, she was able to afford. She and Stephen were able to afford their first house. In 2000, they had a daughter named Lindsay, and in 2002, their son Ian was born. All through this time, Tara was still getting promotions, and her employer just loved her. By her employer loved her, I mean from the boss on down. Everybody, this is an international, extremely large uh, business company. It's a development company. It's a consulting company. It's all of those things, and everybody there who knew her loved her. And this is impressive because, you know, I don't want to act like there's been no change in this arena at all, but having children in the workplace is still not easy for women to do. They are scared to reveal their thoughts about it. They are family planning in the background. I mean, Tara obviously knew what she wanted. She knew she wasn't going to stop working, but having babies while you're working and building a career is so beyond difficult, more so than the building of the career or the building of a family. You're doing both simultaneously. So thank goodness your employer loved her. (laughs) I agree. I mean, you know, I was doing it in the 80s. You were doing it in the the early 2000s. And um, you had it way worse than I did. There's a lot. There's a, well, um, you know what? Each one of us, talking about me and you. Yeah. We each found our own way to make it work. That's true. And uh, 
worked, but it was not easy, as you say, and I think it's getting harder and harder. But anyway, uh, just remember that her company is a very large international company. They were constantly acquiring even larger consulting companies, and on and on and on it went, and on and up and up and up she went. So that's what was going on. In 2006, she was offered a job with Washington Group in Puerto Rico for a salary of $160,000 a year plus perks like travel. She could travel back home and, and, uh, and bonuses that she would get on an annual basis. That's about, you know, $300,000 today to, you know, with the perks and all and the health insurance. I'm sure it was more like $4,000. But anyway, $400,000. She was managing a systems uh, department and she was so highly regarded, Carolyn. I'm not just saying that because she gets murdered. I'm saying it because her death shocked so many people and it had an impact on so many people. Well, she like was offered all, a spot. We've all been deprived, honestly, because she seems like a rock star of an individual, like a human, rock star human. Mom. She could be mother. anything. She could be anything. She could be a president of the United States, which we sorely need. Right? I mean, I just feel like I've never even heard of anyone, particularly a woman in this sort of era, doing this well, so well, so quickly, and deservedly so. Yes. Uh, she was offered by the company, the Washington Group, a spot in their LEAP program, capital L, capital E, capital A, capital P. I don't know what it stands for. I have forgotten. I didn't write it down. But basically, it's an upper management, very elite development program within Washington Group. So they pick the best of the best of their employees, and they say, we're going to grow you into the leaders of this company. Uh, so she someday would be millions and millions coming in the door. I mean, she was slated, picked, groomed. Uh, for this company to someday have her as a vice president or perhaps president of her own subsidiary, that kind of thing. She was, you know, on her way. And now we're never going to know. We're never going to know. I really hate it that I have learned about Tara, not in the way that I would want to Get what to know she's her. doing now, what kind of yes. rock star infrastructure she has made for all of us now. No, I agree with you. There was a major loss here for everybody. In 2006, Tara Grant was now a bona fide corporate executive. She flew to Puerto Rico for the business week and she returned home on weekends and sometimes long weekends. All of their neighbors, her and uh, Stephen, their neighbors, where they lived, all the teachers in the lives of their children, and everybody else who knew them watched all this. And they just say that Stephen Grant was doing a fantastic job as Mr. Mom. And he appeared to just love it. And, you know, now your dad played that role. And oh, and I loved it. He was every great now book. and then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in our marriage, whoever was earning the most money, uh, okay, then can you help me out here and mm -hmm. do this other thing? And he always stepped up and he always enjoyed it. I mean, really, really enjoyed really it. Did. And there was a time when I was the only one working and 
he uh, turned that into the glowing, perfect uh, season of the lives of my children. And I always hear about it that remember that time dad got laid off and he made our dinners every night. And, oh God, you he, know, was he that. learned I mean, how to he, cook. He, he was not Mr. Mom in that he was a mom. He was Mr. Dad. And I think in today's world and in the world that my kids are going to raise their kids in, like the gender's not going to matter. So it's like, you're just right. going to be a great parent at home and a great parent at work. But this timing, it is difficult. Again, when I was raised in the 80s, that whole idea of a divorced family is like this unfortunate thing. You know, that's not true. What that is, is a family making choices for themselves. And it's a beautiful thing because they're trying to get it right, you know? And mm -hmm. so, but it's hard not to let that external narrative seep into your brain, even when you're a secure person who's like, you know, to channel Tara here, F you. I'm doing what works for me and my family because I love those people. I don't care about you and what you think about what I do to make my family, you know, supported. For and happy. all we know, when when they were uh, thinking about starting their family, Tara and Stephen, they may have made a decision at that time. Right. You know, exactly. I'll slow down on the day I give birth and maybe the week after that, but that's it, Stephen. So if you marry me or, you know, if we're going to have a family together, right. you're going to have to be the one. Right. Now that Mr. Mom tag, you know, just to make it clear to all my friends and family, nobody ever called Ted Clausen Mr. Mom. Ever. He was just, he was doing what he could do uh, to, I mean, he was just going to do the task in front of him, just like me. Well, yeah, he, but we just always like, made it work. That's it. And like, he was dad, he was a great dad and he did it like dad, you would have done it differently. And like, you would have done it great too. Cause you were a great mom. So it's like, it was, I, I might, I might learn how to cook, but I doubt it. Okay. Anyway, it was the chili incident. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. One time I put a wicker basket full of rolls in the microwave and I did not know that uh, wires were supporting the basket. You know, I thought it was, you know, natural. And I nearly killed everybody in my family as a result through fire in the kitchen. And so, I mean, you know, I was not destined to be the cook that Ted turned out to be, but he was more of a chemist. You know, he was oh, he, he was into fire? the chemistry of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he put that fire out when you started. <laughs> he put the fire out and he never teased me about it. Uh Except like, behind my back. <laughs> no, he never did. It was just us, just the kids. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, everybody, the neighbors, the teachers, everybody watching this whole thing felt like this is perfect. Mm -hmm. Stephen is the caregiver and Tara is the breadwinner. And this is awesome. And everybody's happy. And Stephen and Tara hired all pairs to help out when she got the Puerto Rico job. And uh, they went through an agency to hire an au pair. And I just found out recently that au pair is a French term meaning a duplicate. Yes. Uh, the same as. You probably already knew that. Oui, oui, madame. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to know pair too, but I unfortunately had not created a life where I could afford my career is on the smaller scale. Oh, well, I mean, you know, so to take the mother's place is basically yes. what an au pair is going to do, mm -hmm. not the wife's place, no. but, the, the, but the caregiving of the children. And it was needed because there's just once you have two kids and one parent is out of town during the school week, you need help. Yeah. So I don't have any problem with having a au pair. 
and they always hired from an agency, which was good, and so forth and so on. And uh, most went, uh, most of these au pairs came from other countries. Young women, girls, some of them, 16, 17, 18, but they were wanting to pursue an American education. And this was a way to have housing and a little bit of uh, money. Absolutely. Uh, Tara loved it that they were from other countries. And uh, because she thought that, well, they'll, my children will learn other languages and learn about the bigger world. And I think she saw it as an antidote to her small town life as a child. Uh, the au pairs usually lasted a few months, which is somewhat normal. But there were reports coming in to the agency that Steve was a little too creepy for some of the au pairs. Um, the last au pair that they hired was from Germany. Tara loved her work and her family, and she did everything to be a good mom. She talked with the kids every day, came home for long weekends as often as she could, and she had long lists. She was a list maker on a lot of fronts, but she was she would make out long lists of the trips and activities that she would arrange for each child lists of presents that she figured out each would like for their birthdays and their Christmases. And she was assured by Lindsay and Ian, her daughter and her son, that they loved having a quote, Mr. Mom and a nanny or the au pair during the week. And everybody was happy and they all loved it. And they loved it, especially when mama came home because, you know, there's our mama. And uh, au pair probably liked it too. Like, I'm going to go see my friends. I might right. never go, come back. Anyway, <laughs> in 2006, Stephen Grant made an $18,000 paycheck for the whole year from the work that he had done for his father's company. And when he got that check, and it was, it was less than the annual bonus that Tara made mm-hmm. that year. So she got God knows how much probably at least 10% of her salary. So we're talking about about three incomes. Let's be real. In the two, in 2006, this is before the great recession. So like, and she's not even in tech. She's making some serious dough. I like it. I like it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Strains in the marriage that were already a bit frequent became very intense over this disparity between Mm -hmm. who's making what. Stephen was feeling more and more dissatisfied with his role in this family. In an effort to show Grant her love and affection and her appreciation, Tara planned a trip for the two of them to Napa Valley to visit wineries and such, and she thought Steve would love to spend time with her that way. The au pair would take care of the kiddos and also Bentley the dog, so they had a dog named Bentley. You know what? I just love dogs so much. They make every story even better. That anyway, was a great I name. <laughs> I couldn't wait to get to the dog part. <laughs> so <laughs> their current au pair was Verena, and she seemed to love her job with the Grants. Verena was blonde and beautiful and studying Spanish. In February two, 2007, now remember, Verena's from Germany, so she's in the United States learning Spanish. So that was kind of fun. In February 2007, Stephen was flirting with Verena, and eventually 
he gave her oral sex. So Verena has crossed a major boundary, but I don't hold it against her. This she's is on a, Stephen. Yeah, she's in a very horrible spot. Stephen took full advantage of that scenario. Oh, yeah. You know, when somebody is even 20, their brain, is their their executive function is still, well, you know, non-existent. There's three-year-olds out there that are questionable. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tara is not stupid, Caroline. Remember we talked earlier about how she could read people, but she wasn't evil about it? Mm -hmm. She could read people, and she could tell that something was up. And on February 9th, she was returning from her job back home to Michigan. She had drafted a letter for Stephen, perhaps to give him on Valentine's Day coming up. And it was sort of an apology-type love letter that promised that she would try harder to be the loving wife he deserved. She never had the chance to give that letter to him. That was found after her death. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, Stephen Grant reported his wife as being missing. He reported it to the sheriff's office. He was bent out of shape because his wife had just returned home on the 9th and said that she had to go back to Puerto Rico on Sunday instead of Monday. So she came home from Puerto Rico uh, for the weekend, but then he found out she was going to return on Sunday. And Stephen said that they fought hard, and Tara called for a car to come and pick her up. The last time he saw Tara, she was driving off in a black sedan. Now, this was very unusual because Tara always drove herself to and from the airport in her Isuzu Trooper. Hmm. So, you know. Red flags already. Questionable story. <laughs> I'm sure that's what the sheriffs were probably thinking, like, how convenient for you. Yeah, right. It's funny and to remember, me. remember, she came Stephen home on probably, the 9th. Stephen probably thought he's such, like, he's just got these stupid lies in his history so it's almost like you can see him not even considering the facts that the detectives who are talking to him would already know. They would already know a lot of things that even Stephen wouldn't even probably think about, you know? Well, you know how Tara wanted to, you know, make something of her life and, and leave the little town? Yeah. She put everything she had into it and she did it and she achieved it. Okay. Well, Stephen is a liar. That's all he ever wanted to be, yeah. apparently. And so nobody ever gave him feedback about his lies because right. they were lies. People are not going to say, okay, that was a lie. Let me tell you how you can make it better. Well, you do, they, which is very thoughtful of you. I've heard you say that to people before. <laughs> but you're a good leader. So, I mean, Tara may have people, said you that to you. <laughs> she may have yeah, said that. I like, think yeah, every mother, every mother probably <laughs> says that at least a dozen true. times to every child. Yeah. Every Let's child. Roll that one away. And once again, I go back to my comment about, you know, I think that Stephen is just this child with the impulse that well, a child would have. Well, there you but go. He's Maybe wanting to he... be a. Oh, go. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say when he was practicing his, his lies during his, you know, formative years, he never got feedback about his lies. So he never became a better liar. Right? Like, like, and, and I know we say that and it's like a joke, but it's true. If you don't get feedback on things you want to be good at, you're never going to get good. But it's Not like, right. he, I think I'm, I'm assuming, or I'm making a jump here that when his family separated itself and it just deconstructed into something different, he found a like crack to slip through. 
Like, yes. I think he wanted to slip so that he could do whatever he wanted and it would be. Oh, well, hell yeah. You know? I do too. I mean, you know, this whole thing was weird. And now remember, she came home on the ninth, and this is, this is Valentine's Day. That's kind of a surly, d- dark joke on Steve's part to pick Valentine's Day to make up a lie about your wife has just disappeared. But anyway, the detective picked right up on it. His name was Detective Hughes. Uh, oh, my dog does not like Stephen. So, um, you know, Fiona does not like Stephen. I don't know if I've mentioned that, but she just does not. So, whenever I'm talking, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yep. For some reason, I feel like my microphone is not working. Anyway, uh, sorry, listeners, for you know, uh, wasting your time listening to my fears about. Am I, am I, is my mic working properly? Mm -hmm. My dogs do shake me up from time to time. Anyway, back to our story. Steve Grant told Detective Hughes all about it, and Detective Hughes could tell that his affect was way off. For example, Hughes later said that he wanted to understand the role of the au pair played in the family, and Hughes asked Stephen if his relationship with Verena was sexual. And of all the comments he could make, this is what he said. Stephen replied, well, she will never say. What a weird thing And then he laughed. Yeah. Yeah, he's weird. weird. Yeah. Steve also insisted that Detective Hughes call Tara's boss and put him on speakerphone right there in the precinct just to verify that Tara was not there. Oh, my God. Later, Hughes would find out from Tara's boss that in 10 years that he has known Tara, she never went off on her own like that. She's not the type of person that'll walk out on anything. Right. She had never missed work. Tara was a person of great self-management skill, and she just flat out did not do impetuous things such as, quote, unquote, disappear. Right. Or take off. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I don't know what Stephen thought the value would be of putting him on the speakerphone, but that probably was not the answer that he wanted to hear from the boss. No. He probably thought that he was going to hear something like, yeah, she didn't turn up for work, so he fired her. Something like that. But Stephen has no idea what her universe is really like. I was just thinking that. And that's a common thing for stay-at-home moms, I know. So I'm sure it's the same for stay-at-home dads. You start to feel like your world is very, I don't want to say small because it's not small. You do a huge job. But at the same time, your job is so all-consuming that it can feel really personally painful to walk out into the world and realize there's these ginormous universes of adult living and you're not a part of any of them. That's hard. It's a hard Mm -hmm. part about raising kids. It is very hard. And, you know, not to defend everyone at Tara's, everyone at Tara's place of work was very worried. This is still the Washington group there in Puerto Rico, to say the least. Stephen made an insinuation to the investigator that Tara might be having an affair with her boss. So here's a little projection of himself onto her. So that's Freudian to me. Yeah. Like, anyway, like a self incriminating, like he wants to, like, 
Yeah. Yeah. Where I, why would your mind go there? I think he was trying to smooth over the part where they were very worried about her in Puerto oh, Rico right. and they wondered, where is she? Because she's never done anything like this. Oh, good point. Yeah. Just keep doubling down till you hit something. I mean, you know. Oh, my goodness. Um, Stephen talked with investigators on the case and they talked with Verena. She came across to investigators as a young 19 or 20 year old in way in over her depth. She didn't know anything about Tara leaving in a black sedan and she didn't know anything about Tara planning to leave on Sunday either. When talking with investigators, Stephen was stumbling along, making some comments to appear honest while leaving out a lot. For example, what do I mean by that? He said that he had an arrest warrant out for him due to traffic citations of speeding and running red lights, when in fact he had just paid all of those off except for one ticket at the time of his interview with the detectives. So in other words, he would manufacture one revealing truth that really didn't amount to much in order to cover a boatload of other lies. He thinks, because this is what his lying experience has taught him, that these detectives, if he says, you know, there's a warrant out for my arrest because of speeding tickets, and they go and they find one ticket, the rest were just recently paid, he's thinking that if he manufactures this one bad fact about himself, then that will cause the detectives to think that he is a truth teller. Oh, yeah. This one didn't make sense to me because I I didn't know why you would do that. Why would why would you tell police that you have a warrant when you know you don't? They're really they got good systems, detectives. They yes. know how to vet answers. <laughs> He's just you know he doesn't. Stephen just is in his own head as a liar. And he's another one of those people who's just going, I am so great. I am so great. Right. Right. Like who wouldn't believe this? Who, (laughs) how smart is that for me to, well, you know, if you talk to any detective, any time of the week in any part of the planet of earth, they're going to tell you suspects will say a little thing that is unflattering in order to make you think that they're totally honest. Which makes sense. And that's I mean, what I, was going on here. I do that in my day-to-day just so that people will be nicer to me. So, I mean, I get it on some level. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I probably do, too. I no, mean, you, you know, in, like, anyway. we, we, we all are trying to not hurt the other person or to speed things along so that we can get back to our focus, mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. that. There's a difference between a polite, social um, nicety. Yeah. Than uh, covering up a murder by telling them that you have a traffic ticket. As detectives closed in on Stephen, uh, he hired a high powered attorney. Stephen did. Detectives were, I'm sure he used his family's money. Detectives were circling closer and closer to Stephen as being the killer, even though they hadn't found her body. Airline records show that Tara was scheduled to return to Puerto Rico on Monday. Detectives were more than a little suspicious. Yeah. There was one particular call Tara had placed the day she left Puerto Rico for her home in Detroit. Tara's flight was delayed a bit on the Newark leg of the journey to Detroit, and she called her sister, Tricia. So now, you know, Tara's sitting at the airport. She's got a layover. Who am I going to call? I'm going to call Tricia, my sister. Hey, they talked for almost an hour. 
Kara shared that she thought her marriage was over. <laughs> she just spilled it. She said, you know, the two of us, uh, uh, her and Stephen, we just have very different goals and directions. That's how she was reading it. We're we're just on, we're not on the same page. Yeah. On the same page. Now, this is on the return trip from Puerto Rico on the 9th that she told her sister that. She expected to talk at length with Stephen over the weekend. Mm. That's what she told her sister. All the things, yeah. Tellingly, Tara said nothing about leaving for Puerto Rico on Sunday, a day earlier, to her sister. And that was something that she would have mentioned. Now, Caroline, in my opinion, Stephen Grant, you know, he's not only a master of lying. I won't say a master. If you are a master by doing it all the time, then okay, he's a master. But he wasn't good at it. He was also what I think a master of just weird stuff that he does. He's just weird, some of the stuff that he did. For example, Stephen mentioned to detectives multiple times that he and Tara spent a lot of time at Stony Creek Park. Now, Stony Creek Park is a massive 4,000-acre nature reserve near where they lived in the Detroit suburb where they lived. He cried and he blubbered a lot when he was talking about this Stony Creek Park reserve that they went to all the time. Now, why would he tell them that? He talked to the press about it. Oh, yes, he went to the press. He would be crying on TV, sobbing, putting on significant waterworks. I'll give him that. The ability to cry on demand, to smooth over a lie, that is not something that most people ever develop. He produced copious tears. He could have been been, uh, an actor and probably would have made a good living. But he was on TV. Anyway, he was on TV every night with a different reporter. Reporters would later say that he would call them up multiple times and beg to be interviewed until they just gave in. It was just easier to just give in to this guy oh, and no go ahead way. and interview him. Wow. He was eating it all up, Stephen was. And um, saying slightly incriminating things in order to run a fraud of a, on a larger issue of what he had done to Tara to make her disappear. So he was doing that to the press as well. Detectives heard about this park so many times that they decided to search it. On Saturday, February 24, a troop of searchers showed up. They were looking for Tara's body. When I say a troop of searchers, I mean hundreds of people. Yeah. Um, From various precincts, the state, I mean, they, they probably citizens. Probably family, probably flew in Tara's oh, family. Oh, probably family. Maybe even Stephen's family came. Who knows? And even while this was happening, Stephen was still going on every TV show in the area. And just, he, he, if he, he probably got a who's who of reporters in the Detroit area and just had a checklist. Yeah. On the 26th. Now, remember, she is reported missing on the 14th. So now we're talking about um, 12 days, almost two weeks later. Mm -hmm. A hotline was set up, and the public was put on high alert looking for Tara. Now, remember, they had this big search team. But remember that this wildlife preserve, this nature preserve, is 4,000 acres. That's huge. And it's mostly wooded. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's got trails and everything. Oh, it's probably right out of town, right out. I don't know where. It's it's very famous Detroit location. Yeah. But I mean, like. Uh, not far as, from their home. It's as big as a city. So it's like you probably couldn't even walk across it in a day kind of a thing. You know what no, I mean? Like, no. So you're definitely not going to fully search it in one sitting. Right. So by February 29th, everyone in the region knew about the missing mom, Tara Grant. A woman was jogging in Stony Creek Park on this day, February 29th. And she was this woman who would jog through that preserve and she would pick up litter on her jog. That was her that was her mash. That's what she liked to do. That's you know? nice. I like that. Very nice. I walk through a park every day and I don't pick up trash because I don't want cooties on my hands. And I could do this if I were braver, but I'm not. But anyway, a woman was jogging in Stony Creek Park. She came upon a plastic gallon-sized bag that stood out. I mean, it popped out at her because of the vision of seeing a red substance inside. So she's going over there to it. She's probably going to pick it up. But then she saw several other bags nearby. After that, also with weird stuff in it, she carefully collected all of them, thinking of Tara's disappearance and wanting to help, and she took the whole lot to the police station. And each was filled with weird contents such as blood, latex gloves, metal shavings, blonde hair, and the hair looked like it might be coming from a dog. She met technicians at the location that where she found the bag. By technicians, I mean, you know, forensic yeah, investigators. The, the field guys. <clears throat> Photos were taken and some footprints were found with blood nearby them. And suddenly a lot of activity was going on at that park. Oh, my gosh. Now, Grant worked at the tool and die shop, as I've said. And so the shaving seemed ominous to police. Tests came back positive for human blood, and the hair was that of a dog, similar to the Grant family dog, Bentley. Way to go, Bentley. Yeah, Bentley. All of this triggered a search warrant for Grant's house, Stephen Grant. Stephen was stopped on his way to his house, and he was told not to touch anything in the house. Don't even go in there, in fact, because there's a search going on. Here's the warrant. So Stephen walked from his house. Uh, where he had been stopped, you know, prior to reaching his his driveway. And he just kept on walking, Caroline. Yeah. He just kept on walking. Nobody I had think, their eye on him. I think their detective said he just grabbed, like, his dog. He just acted like he was just going to walk his dog, and he just started walking. Yes. <sighs> yes. Meanwhile, one of the detectives was helping with the search uh, and was now in the garage area. And I don't even know if he was in there to search. I think he might have been like a supervisor of the whole thing, and he was just going to the garage to see what was in there. But he saw a plastic container that kind of stood out. He opened it. It was like where, uh, you know, sport equipment or tools or something might be stored. It was marked, uh, quote, kids' clothes. You know, that's what was emblazoned on it. Yeah. Yeah, magic marker, kids' clothes. Inside, he found a plastic bag, a black plastic bag, industrial type, you know, bag. Inside that bag was another bag. And inside that bag was the torso of a woman twisted, 
to fit inside that tub. So, obviously, they feel like they've found Tara, part of her. Grant was nowhere to be found for two days. Where did he go? Well, he had gone to a friend with Bentley on the leash. He'd gone to a friend's house. He just walked down there. He borrowed the friend's car, and he got in it and went and uh, visited his sister, where he stole various drugs from her medicine cabinet. By drugs, I mean prescription medications. Yeah. From there, he took off for the deep woods near Lansing, where his sister lived. He was ultimately found in the deep woods, Caroline. As I said, it was two days looking for him. Yeah. He had taken copious amounts of medication in an effort to end his life. He was frostbitten. He was hospitalized and arrested. His deep body temperature was only about 87 degrees, so he really was near death. Wow. What a horrible but way they to found himself. <laughs> I know. They, they found him by following a trail of debris that he had dropped along his way into the woods, like breadcrumbs. So I'm, that tells me he didn't want to die in those woods. Say, this is such a confusing individual because he's like so obvious and yet he's doing all these really weird things. Like that doesn't, these are weird things. I don't know. It's all very weird. <laughs> well, you know how sometimes I try to imagine, you know, our killer with a, with a, with a gerbil running around a, a, a rotating wheel and yeah, their mind yeah. is just, you know, at one track. Got a murder, got a murder. Yep, yeah. Fiona feels um, it too. <laughs> uh, when I get an image in my mind of him, you know, he's a gerbil with a weird, but he's on, he's off. He's on, he's off. Yeah. He's digging holes over here. He's digging a pathway over there. I mean, yeah, you that's know, a- he was so full of hooey. So sorry. <laughs> I have a, I obviously have a UPS truck at my door. But I'm just going to keep on plowing here. So Stephen was trying to rebuild his story. Grant changed his story so many times. Uh, You know, Stephen laying in that hospital bed, he was probably under, you know, all kinds of, I don't know if they put him on any more medication because he was already on Medicaid. Anyway, ultimately they got him all thawed out and he started talking. He ultimately admitted that in a fight with Tara, he just lost control. She was dead, and he had to get rid of the body, so he took her body to his family's, his father's, really, tool and dye shop, and he used the equipment there to cut Tara's body apart so that he could spatter, not spatter, sorry, that was Freudian, scatter the parts in Stony Creek Park. I remember how many hints he left about Stony Creek Park, Yeah, and they had the big search going on. He told detectives a story of taking his kid's red plastic sled. Okay, so now just visualize this. You got a red plastic sled belonging to his kids. He loaded it up with her body parts. He took it to the park. And on a hill in the park, he lost control of his sled full of body parts. And he had to chase it down in the snow. And when he was telling detectives this story, He started laughing hilariously. He thought that was so funny when he shared that scene with detectives. And Caroline, I don't know about you, but this man, 
in my opinion, is missing some major parts yeah. in his head and his heart, his soul, something. Ugh. Yeah, this whole thing is creepy. I mean, you loaded a body and took it to a factory, used machine parts that you have used in their regular, normal, make machinist part capacity, and you cut up a body. That's crazy. And then you laughed about it while using your child's the most innocent, like, hello, Rosebud, the child sled. Like, oh, my yeah. gosh. What? A- I think it was one of those plastic, red plastic saucer things. Oh, yeah. But this is God disturbing. This man. What these police have to hear in the course of their work, uh, my hat is off to yeah. homicide detectives mm. and crime scene technicians and ordinary police officers on the beat, yeah. the things they see in here. But anyway, when uh, Stephen heard that the police were going to begin a grid search of the park, now remember that happened on the 26th, he decided to bring her torso, which was the biggest piece of the body, into his garage. Uh, I guess he's just thinking, well, this is the biggest piece of human body. And it used to contain the glorious spirit and soul of terror, but he's not thinking along those lines. He just has no problem with what he has done to her, and he brought it back. So Stephen Grant ultimately was tried to determine the level of murder he had committed and what his punishment would be that he'd already already admitted. The jury convicted Steve of second-degree murder. They didn't have the evidence of premeditation. During the penalty phase, the judge was told that Tara's children, little Lindsay and Ian, ages six and four, at the time of the murder, had witnessed their mother's death. Oh my God. Learning this, the judge sentenced Stephen Grant to 60 to 80 years. So he's going to die in prison. Well, yeah, I'll just call it life. Stephen's father. Remember how he divorced Stephen's mom and one child went with him and another child went with the mom? Stephen was the child that went with the father. He committed suicide after the conviction. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, you know, he couldn't handle it. I mean, you know, his son had taken her body to his his business that he that he started and had become successful and there's some mirror in here with the Dahmer story too, with the parents and the separate lives. And suddenly like, you know what I mean? Like that's always been an odd construction to me because I don't understand it. So I would always want to know more about why those choices get made. Why isn't there more attempt to keep the siblings intact? I don't know. Anyway, side note. Yet again, the other thing I notice is we see violence again and as a way to deal with trauma and it makes me simultaneously fat, very sad for the father. And also wondering if violence was a part of Stephen's upbringing. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. Cutting up meat was because he was a hunter. Mm. Everybody is in the Upper Peninsula, okay. what I have read. And uh, so, you know, uh, there's that. But I don't think so. I think that Stephen was a pathological liar. He could see no wrong and only good coming from lies. It was ingrained in him, and I do not believe that he snapped and killed Tara. I do not believe that. I think his entire life was impulse-driven, 
and murdering was in the toolkit of his selfish mind yeah. in his selfish whole life. He's probably running scams and schemes right now from prison, right? I actually believe his story that it was an accident, but he had to deal with the body now. <laughs> like I right. genuinely like think like right. there was he's just going with whatever's coming his way. And he's, he's an impulsive. Yeah. He's got childish impulses. That is to me what's going on with this man. So you can't say that he snapped. When you're already a snap machine, yeah. you it's don't report something as being he snapped. No. He didn't snap. And I noticed, and you noticed too, that a lot of mainstream media said he snapped. They really did. They acted like it was such an anomaly. But I think Oh, I reject that. I reject too. that idea completely. I think it's the persona that they had created, right? I mean, we walked through their entire everybody's like, oh yeah, he's Mr. Mom and he loves it. Like nobody loves everything about their life every day. That's just the fact of life. Some days are you bad. Know they're faking if they say that they're happy every day. Yes, exactly. And life is, you know, anyway, what a dark story we had for our listeners. And and it's very cruel. It's cruel and it's dark. And so why did we call it eternal light? Well, Lindsay and Ian were adopted by Tara's sister. And her husband and she legally adopted them. And they are now known today as Lindsay and Ian Standerfer. Every year they return to Tara's hometown and they stage something called Tara's Walk to fund a nonprofit that focuses on bringing light to the issue of domestic violence and prevention. I love that. I love So out of this killing, yes. these two children became Tara's sister's children. And they grew up and made something good out of something horribly, hideously cruel and dark. In an interview with Lindsay, that I watched, she said that she had no interest at this time in visiting her father in prison. She said, quote, unquote, I made my own closure. Uh, in other words, she doesn't need to visit with her father to make, to have closure in her life. She made her own closure. And I don't really believe in the word closure anyway, when it comes to the death of a loved one, you, that that's not, there's not a, it's not a closure kind of a thing. I don't care how your loved one uh, passed away. Um, it's just something you learn to live with. Anyway, Ian was asked if he wanted to see his father in prison, and he said, no, not really. And then he said it just like that. And he added, I just want to do my part to help people get out of abusive relationships. Although the abuse was physical and deadly in the end for Tara, I believe Steve was, Stephen Grant was not just a liar, but a serial gaslighter. Mm -hmm. Gaslighting is designed to undermine the confidence of the victim. I believe that Stephen Grant spun a series of lies and gaslighting against Tara to break her confidence as a wife and a mother. Remember that apology letter that she was working yep. on after she believed that the au pair and her husband were having yep. it, getting it on and yep. in her bed. Yep. She went, wrote a kind of an apology. Here's what I'm going to do to be a better wife letter. After she died, her lists upon lists about how to do better oh. were found. 
That just breaks my heart. Me too, because I'm a list person and I think everyone always wants to do better. Of course, you want to apologize in a situation you feel like even if you feel like you don't really have guilt, you just want to... Well, he was a gaslighter and she had nothing to apologize for. And, you know, while men are lauded for their international business prowess, this woman was doubted. She doubted her own right to be a successful business leader that she became. She thought she may not have deserved to have the successful career and family that she had with children. This idea is just so crushing to me. Right. And I'm comforted somewhat at the end of this story about the eternal light of her children and the light that is her shining through her children, who obviously recognize that confidence bashing, guilt tripping, constant criticism amounts to domestic violence at every bit as much as punching somebody around. Yeah. And if it happened to you, or if it has happened to you, dear listener, I hear Fiona gets very upset, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) If there's abuse going on with you, or you know somebody is suffering from abuse, here's the telephone number that we want you to call. 1-800-799-7233, or you can text... S-T-A-R-T to 88788. The number again, 1-800-799-7233. And it doesn't have to be physical abuse. It can be mental and emotional abuse. Or you can text START 88788. And that's the end of our story today, Caroline. The uh, eternal light is what I'm going to focus on now. Today's episode is researched, written, and narrated by Bridget and Caroline. Some of the narration belonged to my dogs, and I'm apologetic to our listeners for that. I do what I can. (laughs) Produced by our brother and son, Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person or by social and or by social media. All of these actions really help other listeners find us. And we thank you. We appreciate our listeners very, very much. And don't forget to live and let live. Bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.